Hey friends, it's Jessica Sun. Welcome back to Guru Please. This episode is truly unforgettable. This is the story of someone who has quite literally reinvented his life in just two years. He went from suicidal and really was ready to die to be now living in a place of fulfillment and happiness. He shares tons of takeaways around how to dispel the myth that success brings about happiness, how to handle the critical voices coming from in and around us, and tips for finding and following your calling. I really hope that you get a lot out of this because I did. His journey is truly remarkable, and I hope that you'll be just as inspired as I was listening to his story. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. And I'd also love to hear your feedback. All right, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life and stepping up to live with more meaning, more purpose, and more passion. I'm your host, Jessica Sun. I'd like to introduce Rob Tull. Rob is an author, coach, and speaker. He helps high-achieving professionals and working parents find personal and professional fulfillment now, rather than delaying their happiness. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hi. Thanks, Jess. So, Rob, I wanted to kind of rewind time with you and Mm -hmm. bring us back to when you were a student in college and kind of just graduating and just getting into work. What was that like and what did it kind of become for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there, there was a bizarre element where you get, you know, where you feel like you're faced with adult decisions, but you don't feel totally equipped at the time. And what I knew, so I was a finance major in, in, for undergraduate. The concept is you pick this path and you stay on. And at the end, you get a finance degree and you get a job doing finance, <laughs> doing finance things. And, um, and then you then pursue your goals from there. And, and normally what the way that it's packaged, right, is, hey, if you get a good job working for a good firm, you make good money. And if you make good money, you can have good things. And if you have good things, you can have a good life. And that was that was kind of the causal relationship that, that was marketed and, and that I subscribed to. And so when I got out, I knew after, you know, four years of studies that that was not, that was not consistent or congruent with my values, my ethics, and even what I wanted from my life. I was passionately an artist, both um, from a visual arts perspective and poetry and creative writing. But I was always told, stick with finance because you can't get a job as an artist. That was, I, I was raised in a very unique situation where very young, it was instilled in me that I had one purpose in life, and that was to provide for my family at all costs. And, and not my family, meaning but the family, not my family of origin, but whatever family I would acquire while growing up. Um, and the way to do that is to get the jobs that are the quote unquote best. And that's why you get good grades is to get good jobs. So at that time, I was really boxed into a situation where I knew I didn't want to pursue that industry, yet I invested four years and an awful lot of money in it. So it was, okay, try one job, apply for one job. And if you get it, you got to take it. And if you don't get it, you move on and, and pursue you know, being an artist or being an author or being a teacher, whatever it was that was really resonating in my soul. And unfortunately for me, I got the, the first job. And so it was, it was offered to me. I said, yes. And then that basically tipped over the first domino. And so I ended up in this career where I thought I ended up in a profession where I thought, okay, I'll work this job for a little bit and then move on. 
And unfortunately, the same week I started my new job, I met the person that would become my partner. And so started dating her. And then next thing you know, it was, well, I don't like my job, but now I'm committed to somebody. And you start to look at the job as a way to provide for a certain lifestyle and to support certain desires. And that's exactly what happened. And so that was at 22 when, you know, I couldn't accurately find my elbow from, you know, my rear end. And that's where I made life-changing decisions at that point, totally uninformed and, and inconsistent with my intuition, truly. So I have a few questions for you from that. So how did you know that intuitively it was going against like your grain and, and why did you go against it? That's a great question. So, so part of knowing how it's against my grain is actually twofold. So part of it could say, you know, am I doing something I, am I doing something I want? Or I'm doing something that others believe I should be doing and I'm trying to meet their expectations. And so at the time, I didn't have the tools to correctly identify that. But had I had the tools that I have now, one of the things I really would have asked myself is to imagine my future self and to really spend some time visioning and seeing who that future person is and, and really spend some time and listen to the advice that future person would give me. And it's not necessarily the words, it's the feeling of seeing a future self. And it's that kind of reciprocity in feelings. If there is that feeling of relief, if there is a feeling of compassion, of love, of warmth, that's all positive. And that reinforces, hey, what you're doing is likely consistent with what you, with what you want to do. But if that feeling, if that, remote, if that results in a kind of compassion that is caretaking, or that there's pity, or that the relief isn't relief, but a resignation, that kind of emotion that comes up, that's a red flag for you're, you're fulfilling someone else's expectations. Yeah. The other thing I could have done is really sit down and say, where in my life have I been in situations where I felt like I was in a flow state or when I was in the zone? When did I just get totally immersed and passionately work on stuff where time just evaporated. I can tell you definitively, finance was nowhere on that list had I sat down and do that. Uh, what was on that list was drawing and writing comic book stories, creative writing, really inventing colorful stories to share with my friends uh, mm -hmm. and writing. Those were things that really made the soul shine and really made me feel like I was connected to the universe where I was one. Had I used either one of those tools, mm -hmm. I think I would have been able to correctly put my finger on, you know, I'm not doing what, what I'm meant to do. Instead, I was suffering from the symptoms of it. And the symptoms were that constant feeling of a knot in the stomach where it's like, this doesn't feel right. Like my whole life felt like that. Like this doesn't feel right in the sense of, okay, I just got to get through this part. And like that, I just got to get through this. My life became like essentially 22 years of I just got to get through this. And it was anything from the next minute to the next year. Um, but those, those were the telltale signs that I wasn't living congruent with my desires. And had I had the tools, I would have been able to correctly identify it. Got it. In living this kind of life, which almost wasn't 
your destiny or, you know, felt so wrong for you, you kind of got caught up in the momentum, it sounds like, and one thing led to the next. And, and then you had to support that kind of lifestyle. And that just only grew and kind of locked you into the same path. I mean, I feel like a lot of people face that challenge of feeling like, well, something's not right. But there's such a difference between, as you said, what you want versus what you think you should do. How do we differentiate that? And, you know, how do we approach this? Because it can feel kind of very threatening to even consider these things. Oh, absolutely. And that's where I think a lot of us get caught up in the inertia of it. And so I know from my own experience and and, and in talking to others that have been kind of traveled similar, similar paths. So at some point, you start to make a decision where you start to pursue excellence or achievements in your profession as a way to kind of complement or supplement a deficiency that you have from true emotional reward, right? So the career is not emotionally rewarding, but therefore I'm going to set out objective goals that if I can achieve those objective goals, it's no different than like when I win a hand of solitaire on my cell phone. For some reason, I get a little boost and I feel good. It's meaningless, but I feel good. And it's the same thing that happens. So we start to set objectives for ourselves. You're like, well, I'm going to be the best there is at my profession. Now, that doesn't create satisfaction. What it does create is this kind of perpetual reaching and grasping and never being satisfied. But it's tolerable because it creates an output that then supports this other lifestyle. And the lifestyle might be family. It might be a house. It might be the idea to save for college for children. Whatever it is, it supports that. But the, the process of forfeiting certain internal desires, either knowingly or unknowingly, to pursue down a path that you've already invested time in becomes a losing game. And what I found was, um, I know for myself, there was a number of crossroads I hit where I thought, now is the time to change my career. But I would stop and say, you know, it's too late to change careers. You've invested so much to where you are any change will cause a downgrade in quality of life and will negatively impact my family. So Mm -hmm. my need, like, so suddenly it becomes about this role of a provider. And I I can tell you, I always thought it was my secret, right? I always thought it was only the thing that I knew. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment at work where I gave a training presentation to a bunch of executives. And after the end of the training presentation, one of the new executives came over to me and, and very lovingly put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eye and said, my God, you missed your calling. It, and that was like a punch in the gut because I knew what he was saying. What he was saying is, you wowed us in that presentation. We, nobody saw that. But what he also identified was there's something in you that's not getting out. And when he said that, like I had never... I hadn't felt that dirty before. Somebody knew my deepest inner secret, which was I wasn't living the life I wanted to live. And I was damn good at my job, but it wasn't my calling. And so that, I reflected on that for a long time. And that really started to put the question in there of how do I chase my calling and still not forfeit everything I've achieved and worked for in life? Because that's the ultimate question is, you know, how do you then pivot to a want 
and not risk losing everything? I can only say after losing everything, mm-hmm. I know the answer to that. Unfortunately, when you, when you lose stuff, um, you get a chance to see it up close and watch the entire process happen so you can understand it. But that's kind of a, that's kind of a long-winded explanation, long-winded answer to your question. Wait, so what was the answer to, like, how do you pivot and yet not sacrifice it all or forfeit it all? Okay, so a lot of times when we end up in, so when we feel stuck in a situation, our fight or flight is really amped up, right? So, because when we feel stuck, like, hey, I can't leave this job, or hey, I've invested three years in my major, and I'm one year away from graduation, I don't want to change, or I've been uh, in this profession for 20 years and I'm three years away from retirement. What happens is we tend to look at a change as binary. We tend to think, well, if I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. So when I think of not doing it, it is a zero. It goes from 100 to zero. But that's not the case. And the reason that's not the case is twofold. First of all, change is constant. So and as we've all witnessed in 2020, which it feels like the, the change faucet is on high, mm-hmm. things can change so quickly without us putting in a whole lot of effort. And so we have to understand what it is we want to change in our current situation. When we feel stuck, we can't just sit there and say, it's just the, it's just the claustrophobia of being stuck and it's that kind of anxiety. We have to dig into it and say, well, what is not getting addressed? Because when we identify that, we can then address those specific issues. So in theory, you don't need to change the entire circumstance. But then, so that's the first piece, is change is constant. The second piece, which is really one of the, one of the keystones of, of, of the stuff that I learned from the hard way, is as an individual, a lot of our identities get wrapped up into the roles that we play, right? So, hey, I'm, I'm a finance executive, I think that's part of me. Mm-hmm. That's part of me. That's not me. I am a composite of many, 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 many things. And when, a lot of times when people feel stuck, they go through a radical change where they start to change a lot of things in their life. And the, the visual I always get of it is they blow up their life. Like it's almost like the, when Wiley e. Coyote pushes on the, the dynamite uh, compressor and blows everything up. And that's, that's really catastrophic. And that, that destroys lives. What I found is really zeroing in on the fact that we are composites. We're a mosaic, essentially. Mm-hmm. And if you change one piece in the mosaic, you've changed the entire mosaic. It's no longer the same picture, but it was only one piece. And so when you think about change in that incremental sense, like I'm constantly changing out little pieces in this composite, I can Slowly, but eff- I can very methodically, but effectively implement change without destabilizing everything. So I could stay in the same job. I can stay in the same family. I can. And if I know what I'm trying to address, and then I'm willing to deal with the individual pieces, I can go through a, transfor- a transformative process without laying waste to everything around me. And so that was, that was a major revelation for me. And it really, it, it was a big aha moment. I see. So really not being afraid of change because it is incremental and it's, it's really in those small changes that the picture will 
kind of develop over time rather than saying no any change needs to be like a binary kind of switch and you know i'm gonna just destroy everything kind of thing correct and and the, the other piece too is it's not just change because then you have to ask yourself what am i changing and that really gets to digging through a lot of wants right so if i sit there and say i want to be an executive at a financial services firm and i want to have this quality of life that's an objective and tangible goal but if i'm pursuing that there must be some sort of emotional reward i'm looking at that i believe occurs as a result of achieving that and it's being able to sit down and pierce that concept of this tangible objective and say, well, what are you actually driving at, Rob? Like, because that emotional thing, that doesn't need to wait. And that has been huge of finding that emotional reward and saying that it doesn't just live there. It's not a plant that just grows in that pot. Mm. It, is, it exists across your life. Now you have to find it in other places and then it dials down the level of stress that goes on that job or achieving that goal. Because before I was viewing that as the only path to get to happiness or fulfillment or self-worth. And when I understand that that's what I've been driving at, and then I spend the time to say, well, where else does it exist? I now implement change to foster the growth of it in the areas where it's fertile, where I can get that change. And so it's, it's, partly that incremental change, but it's also partly looking away from that one goal and trying to find the true goal elsewhere. And it's not just elsewhere as an alternative, it's in many other places, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, what you're talking about is, you know, that feeling that some people have where we're compromising, sacrificing, overextending ourselves, kind of just feeling bad in general because of this myth that success will bring us happiness and to just get to the next rung on the ladder is going to heal us and it's going to get rid of that shame and you know the low self-esteem and somehow it'll make up for that let's dispel this myth and let's really break down like how to feel good now rather than you keep thinking that something else is going to come in and and make us feel good yeah ab absolutely so I, for myself, in my, in my own narrative, what I was really looking for was a sense of fulfillment, of feeling loved, and feeling at peace. And so when that wasn't, and, and that even translated into jobs because it came from school as well. What, what is an A plus? An A plus, if you're seeking love, an A plus from a student feels like love, mm. right? If, if you're seeking value, academic competition and GPAs, that feels like love. When you're competing for promotions and you're competing for job opportunities, it all gets misidentified as those emotions. It basically becomes that antidote for that emotional ache, right? It's just, it's really an ibuprofen or it's, it's, it's an anti-inflammatory for that emotional ache. And so identifying those emotions and saying, well, why? why? Why do I want to feel accepted? Why do I want to feel loved? Why, you know, why do I want to feel these things fulfilled? And where does that happen? Well, part of, hey, I want to feel fulfilled. Well, Rob, do you even know what that is? So I've got to spend some time and really reflect on what does that mean to me? And what happens is, in my own case, it was, well, it was like that time I did X. 
oh, okay, well, that's new. Well, see, so you felt it at some point. Yeah. Well, what was going on and why did you feel it? And where was, oh, I was at the mountains. Okay. So you were in the mountains. You were in nature. Who were you with? You know, what were you spending your time doing? And it was really deconstructing those moments. And, and one of the analogies that somebody reflected back to me on what I was saying, and I love it, is it's not like you're looking at the menu and remembering the things you ate. You're looking at the menu and remembering how they tasted. And that's what it was, was when I finally locked on to that. Uh, when we find what the emotional qualities are that we want to experience, and we can understand when we feel them and when they come up, we can then start to really understand what's causing them and, and, and what contributes to the increase of them. And that really is the foundation for moving forward because what that does is it takes the framework that we normally sit within, which is you need to achieve goals, you need to get a good job, you need to have a house in the suburbs. It takes all that nonsense and puts it on the side and says, if you like that, that's great. It's neither a barrier from or avenue to those things. And now suddenly the ability to achieve those emotional qualities is completely within my control. Mm. And so that, that really changes the perspective of it. And it takes situations going from seemingly helpless into feeling fully empowered. Hmm. What about those voices of doubt that kind of can crop up, you know, from maybe our parents or society that say, in your case, maybe you can't be an artist that doesn't work out financially and here's the safe thing to do. How do you kind of see those voices now? Oh, that's, that's great. I think I reserve any judgment on the voices, but where they come from is really a good question because they all come from areas of, of care and concern, right? So if it's an assumption or an interpretation that I've built myself, right, or, or it, based on circumstances, the reason I have that is I'm protecting something. So it's essentially a risk aversion, right? I'm trying to protect myself from something. So somebody gave me advice, either directly or, or, or indirectly, and it's now in my head. And so part of overcoming that is twofold. The first is finding the right space for that voice. And then the second is finding how to take action. Now, I don't want to say against that voice, but inconsistent with what that, avo- what that voice says. So the first one is how to separate it. And one of the things that I really like to do, it's, it's a practice that I find just completely rewarding and, and really, really emotional. It's this idea of, um, I call it unpacking and repacking. And it goes back to that concept that I said earlier that we're like mosaics, we're composites of things. And what it essentially is you unpack all the pieces to the mosaic, unpack it all, and look at each individual piece and really study it and think about, does, is this me? Is this me authentically? Or is this something that's not me? And what I mean by not me is, while it might be a true attribute that I have in display, it doesn't make my soul feel good. It's not consistent with my spirit. You know, I, I can be a very impatient or temperamental person. And that's, that's a response to something. So I can look at it and say, that's not really me. And so I'm able to identify it and then say, what do I want to do with it? It had a purpose. I used it at some point. It was probably protecting something or getting me something. Does it have a place going forward? And it allows me to kind of separate it. So when that negative voice comes up that says, Rob, you can't take that risk. 
you know, or, or that's, that's foolhardy. You don't want to do that. Or that's not what a wise person would do. I ask myself, where's that coming from and why? Because I really need to understand that to know, is that something that's reflexive and defensive that's advising me? Or is that something that's authentic and advising me? Uh, and I have an, abil- and have an ability to distinguish between those two. Mm. Now, when I go to act against it, right? So there's kind of, again, it's that protective thing. When, when we fear something, it's really a fear of pain. And the fear of pain really comes down to a couple of categories, right? There, there's physical, there's emotional, there's the, the fear of change itself, and there's the fear of losing a long-held belief, which is a painful thing in and of itself. So if I'm considering something and that negative voice is coming up, it's because it says the fear is beyond our risk appetite. We are not willing to accept the risk associated with this because of fear. And so now I've got to really dig into the fear to say, okay, what's driving this? What is it that's scary about this? Is it the financial harm, the emotional harm, the physical harm? And then I can start to address it and say, okay, well, if this event occurs, if this risk occurs, how am I going to survive it? And so what I do is I basically tabletop that risk and prove to my inner voice that if the risk were to even occur, it's not as bad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like you almost demystify it. Yeah. And then what happens is that voice isn't so loud anymore because you've addressed the fear. And that's what its purpose was, was to address fear. Right. So when I minimize the fear, I minimize the voice, and now I can act. Okay, so you really see this voice as kind of a protective thing in, in yourself, and you kind of dig into, okay, what really is it afraid of? And then you kind of console it and say, hey, it's not as scary as, as you might think. And, and from there, that voice just diminishes on its own. Correct. Yeah. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the behaviors that we have, it's so funny, when you stop, when a person stops categorizing behaviors and attributes as good or bad, and we start just seeing them for what they are and that saying everything has a purpose. You suddenly start to see a spectrum of attributes and things that might not necessarily be something I want long-term because it has caustic qualities, right? Bitterness, right? So bitterness was serving a function at some point. I need to understand why bitterness was there and then I can appreciate it. And I can say, okay, I, I either can choose that when it comes up, I can choose to stay away from it but I can also experience it and not then kind of jump to action, you know, and, and, and respond to it. I can just sit in it. So that idea of like looking at qualities, that inner voice, that inner voice is a composite of things that are there to, you know, protect and to guide. And in coach speak and in, in like an energetic perception, we'll call that the gremlin. And it's really, a, it's something that affects a lot of us. And it's, it's really something that if it's not dealt with, you have a tough time distinguishing between your authentic self and it. Right. We think that we are that voice rather than mm-hmm. the one that kind of observes it. Right. Yeah. 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 That's why the unpacking process is really key. Because when you take everything out bit by bit, you're forced to look at each thing individually. And you can really see that's where you create that separation between yourself and that the voice of the gremlin when you're like, oh, wait, that's not me. I can't stress it enough. It really is such an inspiring thing. And it's just, and quite frankly, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Mm, Right. Because you are learning about who you are and really connecting with that rich, like powerful part of you or that essence of you. Yeah. It is exciting. So with your journey, you kind of hit this 
rock bottom, I would call it, in 2018 when you attempted suicide and kind of died to your old self and came out with like this blank slate kind of feeling. Let's mm-hmm. let's go back to that time and yeah, you know, yeah. I want to kind of unpack what was going on, what led to that, and then what came out of it. Sure. So th- there was a lot of things in my life that were falling apart. So if I were to sit there and say, so w- one of the principles in, that I subscribe to is there's four pillars we have in life, right? Our sense of self, our health, our wealth, and our connections with other people. And when one of those pillars is destabilized, it really destabilizes our life. Well, mm. I was at a point in my life where every one of the pillars was falling apart. My sense of self was completely destroyed. I had health issues that I was combating. I had just lost essentially all of my wealth in the dissolution of my family. And, and on the connection side, I had lost a best friend, a partner, family. It was really, it was really terrible. And what I mean I lost, I didn't mean somebody died. I mean, I literally lost the connection. I no longer felt connected to those people. So not only did I have that type of destabilization, I was also in a career that was overwhelming by all accounts. 80-hour work weeks, seven days a week. It was intense. There was a ton of travel. I was a highly paid executive. I had a tremendous amount of responsibility and accountability that I couldn't actually control. And I hated it. I hated every aspect of it. So not only did I feel trapped, I felt like I was in a crucible. Like the pressure and the intensity was constantly getting dialed up. So not only did I not have these pillars of stability, I was then in a situation where I felt trapped. And then I was presented with a scenario of, by the way, you cannot get out of this. You will be trapped for the next eight to 10 years in this situation. And so not only did that sense of being trapped cause a problem, but that lack of freedom caused a problem. And in sitting there and trying to problem solve, I'm, I'm a really good problem solver and nothing's ever off the table which was probably a fatal flaw here. I guess that's pun intended. (laughs) Um, So in looking at it, I said, I have to provide for my family financially. I need to get out of this job. I need this pain to stop. I've lost my sense of self. I've lost my future. My entire future was gone. My my future dream was to be an old grandpa who was kind of curmudgeon but also a little wily with an old grandmom that I wanted to still be inappropriately flirtatious with. And so it, all that stuff was taken away. And so when you look at this problem of like this, I, I need to stop feeling stuck. I need this pain to stop, but I still need to fulfill all my obligations. And when you sort through all the options on the table, the best one that comes up in, in my situation was suicide. And I had, I had battled suicidal ideations for, for decades, but this was one of those ones where they say, you know, when you have an intent and you have a plan, you have a problem. I had intent and I had a really good plan and I took all the measures to, you know, I had my letter organized with all the insurance policy numbers and phone numbers. Like it literally was a playbook for after the paramedics, you know, come, somebody execute this playbook and everyone will be fine. Everyone will be taken care of. And so that was my out. And that, that felt, there was a huge relief associated with that. And in the process, it was, well, what are you going to miss out on, Rob? Like your future's already gone. The future you've envisioned and worked 20 plus years on is gone. So I sat down with my boys after I had overdosed and I, I basically said, you know, hey, what are you guys going to do for the next 20 years? Like, tell, tell me where you see your life going. And so they thought it was just like a goofy conversation to have, you know, in the backyard in the summer. It was right around July 4th. 
And so I listened to that and that was kind of, that was a nice peaceful way to kind of fall asleep and to say, okay, my boys have big plans for themselves. They'll be fine. You know, it felt fantastic. It felt like the screen goes dark. It's nice and quiet. It's silent. People wait for the house lights to come on and everyone exits. But I woke up and um, I woke up about like three hours later. And to my surprise, <laughs> right. uh, I was still outside. I was, I was a little sunburnt and it was, um, oh, now what? Like that. That was the end, right? Like you're, it felt like the extra scene at the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Well, like, what are you still doing here? You right. should be home by now. And so that, that level of clarity, that level of freshness, it was as if the act of attempting it was this very extreme way to stop all the pain. It like, it like cut off all the nerves. And so for the first time in a while, I didn't have any pain. And there was this level of curiosity and, and wonder about like, well, now what? I just dealt with those. At the time, I said, I just dealt with everything. Now what can I choose? Obviously, it wasn't that surgical. It, it, I didn't do it. In fact, I dealt with nothing. But in, internally, it kind of felt that way. And it allowed some space for me to really step back and to say, well, now what? Mm. Like you ran that life to conclusion. The decision that that person, that life needed to end was a correct decision. That was not the correct method, but that decision was correct. That can no longer continue. So now you have a different version. And, and at, at first it was kind of like version 1.0 and version 2.0 when I, when I conceptualized it for myself, like how I came to grips with, you're not that guy that tried to kill himself. Mm-hmm. And that was a big part of the project was was how do I reinvent myself? And there's, there's a separate theory I have on that that's best for beer and wings. But this was, this was the, the hard part was now what? Yeah, yeah. And out of that space, and as you said, clarity, and where all the mental chatter just ceased, they were all, you know, all the voices were looking around and saying, Oh, what? Okay, what now? Like, I don't know. And from there, you were able to kind of look at yourself and truly kind of dig deeper within. And from there, you became a coach and developed uh, your program, Path 2, which, as you said, you've, you kind of run path number one to its end point. And now this is like your, your rebirth and like your second life, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what was that process of reinventing yourself like? It's a good question. And there's, there's kind of two pieces there. And so there's a reality that when someone has an emotional illness or emotional and or mental illness, um, it requires professional treatment. And so I, I checked myself into a treatment center within a week. So when I said now what, within two days of that, I, I contacted a number of professionals and, and got assessed and, and got myself in a treatment because the thing I did acknowledge at that point was, well, Rob, you used every tool in your toolkit mm. and it clearly didn't work. Mm. You're out of tools and you're out of options, but you're here. So you better go find a professional. And so that was, so there was that process of how do you cover mentally and emotionally? And, and that was all handled by amazing professionals. And it was just, it was awesome. But in that process, there was this, but who am I? Mm. 
And that really was a lot of soul searching because it really made me come to grips with, hey, you made the wrong decision at 22. Like this thing was a long time coming. Mm. And so it really was digging into, well, why did I make those decisions? And, and what could I have done differently? And really spending time, and this, this was really fun. Somebody recently asked me, they, they said, you know, your marriage totally dissolved in a really terrible way. What happened? And they said, I don't know. Like, I, I honestly don't know. I, it, it just happened. And I, it's as if I wasn't a part of it. The news was just delivered to me. And so they asked, how did you recover from that? I said, I didn't. I actually bought a bunch of books on early indications of marital problems because they wanted to know what the autopsy on my marriage would say. I wasn't interested on healing. I was interested on what caused it to die because I can heal, but if I'm ever going to prevent this again, I need to know what happened. And so a lot of my introspection was really directed at what was going on and what were the indicators I could have seen in my life, in my personality, in my family, in my in my family of origin, in my friendships, it was really breaking apart those things and really getting a sense of understanding of, dude, these were the indicators that things were not okay. So in other words, to use the path analogy, these were indicators that the path is going in the wrong direction. These are indicators that what you're looking for is not here. And so, and, and I didn't exercise any choice. So part of my rebuilding process was getting back to basics. And really dealing with, look, you got one shot through this life. You just happen to get a second one. What do you want from it? And, and objective goals were not allowed. So every time I wrote an objective goal down, I had to pierce through it and say, well, what do you think that's going to get you? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the thing you want. Mm-hmm. And so, and what I found out was kind of from, from a very macro level, all the goals in my life were objectives and achievements that were set out that I thought were going to lead to certain emotional experiences. My goals were really emotional experiences. And when I looked at the barriers to achieving those experiences, at first they all felt circumstantial, right? I don't have the money. I live in the wrong place. I don't know this thing. I don't have a degree in that. It's all nonsense. When I pierced through all of the barriers, it really came down to certain types of fears. They were all internal. And so that discovery that all the stuff I want from life are emotional qualities and all the stuff keeping me from that are other emotional qualities. And it was like, and the only thing I can control are how I respond to my emotions. Like, oh, all of this is self-contained. I'll be dumped. And so that really kind of then set apart the, okay, this is the system. Now, what do you do? And that really, that kicked off the project of, orienting myself in life, where are you, dude? Like, where do you want to go? Finding a, not a destination, but finding the next future version of myself and then sitting down and saying, well, what's required to get there? What do I have to do from a change perspective? And I can tell you like the job I was in that drove me to suicide, I still have the primary job and I have it for a completely different reason now because now I have it out of a sense of commitment and loyalty to people. And there is zero pressure because I don't see it as a way to my goals and my emotional qualities. I see it as a way to support people I love and care about. I no longer have a family, so I can, I can support and care about them. And so it's really interesting how that accepting that truth really changes 
the the perspective of the world. Yeah, it sounds like freedom where you are choosing it. It's your choice rather than an obligation or like you must do certain things. And so from there, yeah, because you're you freed yourself from well, this must give me the emotional reward or the feelings externally rather than coming from inside like you've cut that tie and you're saying hey i can give myself the emotions that i'm looking for and what i do externally that's you know that doesn't provide the like internal rewards absolutely yeah and and really understanding the the influence i have on that and the power that i have and and being able to you know to be deliberate in both my my perceptions and my actions as it relates to that. How are you giving yourself like those emotional, that emotional fulfillment that, you know, we all want and maybe seek in different ways and maybe from like false sources. Mm -hmm. So part of it was really understanding what my attribute, what my personal attributes are and what lights me up as a person. And for me, the, the first thing is I'm a helper. I'm, I'm a natural helper, which is why on paper, I thought I was being a good father and a good partner by being the provider protector, the person who was willing to sacrifice everything to provide for my family, because I, I believe strongly in providing. And even the career that I chose in financial services, I chose a very specific niche, which is basically the provider and caretaker for all, for the, for the entire firm. So that was something that was natural to me. Mm. I, I'm expressive. I like to express myself. I like to speak. I like to write. I like to, I like to move people, educate people, and motivate people, and entertain to a certain extent. And so it was, okay, how do I bring these things into my life? And the one thing I had to get past was the rational thought of, you can't do all that. Well, yes, I can. And so a perfect example is, so how do you keep a full-time job, write a book, develop a course, coach people, and I'm also an adjunct professor, and I'm still writing poetry and stuff like, how do you do all these things? And what helped me understand it was when I'm tapping into my passion and I'm tapping into things that are authentic with me, the energy is limitless. That's I always have a reserve because by doing that activity, I'm recharging myself in the process. If I'm slogging away at something that I'm not passionate about, the energy flows one way. It just flows out because it gives me nothing back. When I direct my energy at things that I'm really passionate about and allow me to, to really get in the zone and, and be in alignment with my spirit, when I'm done that activity, I have more energy than when I started. So I, it, it's like I'm constantly moving and there's never stress. There is never anxiety. It is, it, it's amazing. It, it's as if I've got multiple powers, uh, multiple sources of regenerative energy that I can tap mm -hmm. into at any moment. Mm -hmm. So really understanding that, and, and, and here's a big thing too, trusting it. Because when I started to do it, I'm like, well, this feels like a recipe for disaster. Like this feels like you're inviting burnout at an accelerated rate. And it was, well, you learned in the past what the early warning signs are because I did the autopsies. I know what those warning signs are. So put those mile markers out there. And if you start to get there, you're going to dial back. But trust yourself. If you're really passionate about all these things, your best self is going to show up. 
your energy is going to be there. You're going to have that impact you want to have. And then lo and behold, that's the way it started to move. Mm. It, it, it's really awesome. And I, I, I can't, I don't think I do it justice with just simply saying it's awesome. It's one of those things that you need to experience it in order to, uh, in order to understand. And that's not, that's not knocking. I think it's experience it in order to appreciate it. Right. I mean, it's really living fully and in alignment with who you are. Like there's nothing like that. I, I think that's maybe what we're all looking for is that feeling of like my energy is limitless because I feel good and I feel like I'm doing what I'm called to do and what I love to do. Yeah. 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 And, and what, and it's also independent of circumstances. Like I, mm. I can, I can just like everybody else, Take a look back at this past calendar year and think, my God, this has been a nightmare. But what's interesting is from my perspective, I just see opportunities everywhere. Like aside from the quarantine and like there is a tremendous amount of tragedy and injustice going on. But when I look at what I can control in my three foot world, like what is within the skin and bones of my body and what is between my ears, how can I affect myself and affect the world around me? It's all within my control. Whatever's happening in the world doesn't actually affect the things that I'm passionate about. It doesn't affect my sense of completeness with myself. It doesn't affect my, my sense of joy and peace of being able to do the things I love passionately. And so it almost builds this level of resiliency. I used to very derisively, I would use the term silicone. I would say that person is silicone, meaning, meaning they're unaffected by anything like impervious to heat impact lacerations, like, you know, and, and they keep their shape and form. Uh, and I would use it derisively. And now I think about it, that's, that's what being here gives me. I'm impervious to the outside effects. Yeah. Like, and that, and it, it's, it's really empowering, but it's also, it dials down fear across the board. Because now it's like, wow, it almost doesn't matter what happens. I'll be okay. I'll figure it out. Yeah, you really have trusted yourself. And no matter what happens outside of yourself, you're saying, you know, I'll be able to handle it. I'll figure it out and it'll be a new opportunity. What like almost like logistically, what supports that? I mean, I know you're kind of, you've discovered what you love to do. I mean, do you have like routine schedules? Like what are you doing that people can use implement? Yeah. So I do. It is, it is part of, it unfortunately becomes a lifestyle and I didn't appreciate that at first. And so it was one of those things where I felt like when I got on my path too, and I was chugging ahead and I was like, this is great. You know, you get complacent and some of the behaviors fell off. Uh, daily affirmations. So, so daily affirmations, daily intention setting and daily gratitude and success journaling. Those are three things that while it seems like, oh, I don't want to do that, that. That's a lot. That what they provide on a daily basis is an emotional and mental nutrient that does not come from any other source. And so at some point I got, you know, I started to do too much. I missed early warning signs. I got complacent. I wasn't doing those things. And I started to feel the effects. When I started to get some of that, that mental space again, and those clouds started to come back in, it was like, whoa, 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 where's this coming from? And then it was stepping back and looking. So so daily affirmations, daily intention setting, gratitude and success journaling. And then there's this other thing too. It just happens to also have the same, it's an acronym that's PATH, but it has nothing to do with what I say is I talk about PATH as your journey through life. This is just an acronym that just works. And what that refers to is people, activities, techniques, 
and health. And, and what that refers to, it also kind of connects to the four pillars that I referred to earlier, but all of us need those four to be resilient. In different situations, I lost a lot of personal connections and I wasn't doing a good job at reaching out to people. My activities were sidelined first from injury, then pandemic. Some of my techniques fell off and techniques are like those little crutches we use. Like, oh, when I'm having a bad day, I remind myself, I am enough for me right now. You know, and then you start to, you stop doing that. I, my meditation fell back a little bit. And then health is literally, you know, maintaining health. And it's like, okay, in pandemic, suddenly double stuffed Oreos sound like an awesome breakfast. And you know what I mean? And, and it's like, and then the diet goes and exercise goes. And then you start to see the effects. Of it. And you're like, well, wait a second. I feel crappy. Why? Oh, well, all the things that were, so it, there is this kind of lifestyle approach that when you go through this process to reinvigorate yourself and really get in touch with um, your inner truth, there's tools you need to maintain in the process. And the thing that I like to think about is they really are a lifestyle for me. There's never a point where they're going to be gone. They always need to be part of it. And what they give me in return outweighs any inconvenience of having to maintain them. And so but just like in life, there's ebbs and flows, right? There's times where we're on it and there's times when we're off. The best part about my recovery process and learning how to rebuild myself is I, I felt like I came from the very end of a life and I started with no clue. And what that tells me is those are the two polar opposite ends of a spectrum, right? Everything's new. Everything's done. I'm existing someplace in between that continuum every day. And so if I fail to do my tools for a week, I just get back on it. It's not a big deal. Life can course correct. There is nothing I can't fix. And wow, is that empowering? Because it also means I'm not, I'm not, it's not a structure that I have to adhere to every day, even if it's not in my best interest. Mm, like trusting that if you fall off, you can just, just as easily get back on. And Right. Right. And there's no sense of like, I missed it. Therefore, you know, it's just, just a terrible I'm gonna thing. I'm going to myself up. Yeah. Right, that, right. And that's happened so often is we fall off a of behavior and then we just abuse ourselves. Right. And in this, it's like, dude, there's, there's no winning and losing at this. Like, it's just a process and it's a path you're always going to be on. So start doing it again. Like, oh, okay. And so it's like when, when you when when I frame it that way, it's like oh yeah, that's easy. Yeah, you got it. Right. Yeah. When you say it, like we'll we'll always be on this path. Like oh okay, well, I'll just I guess it's time to get back on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. What is your relationship with regret now? Ooh, that's a good one. So regret's a funny thing. I I tend to think of regret as when we're experiencing happiness, uh, unhappiness and we don't address it. It starts to kind of coat us a little bit. You feel like you're wearing a, a layer of unhappiness. And if you leave it there long enough, it's just like sediments on a fossil, right? It, 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 it's gonna harden and it, it's eventually gonna petrify. And when unhappiness petrifies, it's no longer recoverable and that's regret. And for me, there are things I can look back at in my life and say, I regret that decision, but do I feel regret? 
And that's a tough question. So I can look back and say, I made mistakes. I chose the wrong thing at age 22. But I can forgive myself and move forward. And by virtue of that, it almost takes regret off the table. So as long as I'm willing to con- as long as I'm willing to make that choice to enact change, I take away the power of regret. Regret's a theme that I think it lurks in the background. And it's one of those things where it's a good projection, where when I'm faced with something and I'm like, if you don't do something now, Rob, this is going to harden and you're going to be stuck with it. Okay, well, I don't want that. All right, time to do something. And, and what that also does, like for anybody that's prone to procrastination, I procrastinate when I'm really stressed out. Like when I, when I know I'm overwhelmed, I procrastinate. And I will use that, that re- threat of regret to kick out of, of procrastination. Because it allows you to do stuff immediately. Mm-hmm. All I've got to do is one thing, one thing. And if I just do that one thing, I'm minimizing the power of regret. And so that's, yeah, regrets, um, it's, <laughs> it's real. <laughs> that, that's for sure. Yeah. So you're kind of differentiating between I have regrets versus like, mm-hmm. and forgiving yourself for making mistakes versus you know, living into that feeling and denying yourself of, of maybe feeling better. And you're also saying you use potential regrets to kind of boost yourself and, and stop procrastinating. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A final question for you. What is it like to raise your two sons as a single parent? So it's interesting. So I, I have, I want to say custody of one. Um, but so the way that it works is when we dissolved the family, so I had two sons, it was, uh, we split the kids as well. And it was an unfortunate situation where my former partner did not want my older son. And, and they're both, everybody's related. We're all, it was a cohesive family unit. Didn't want to deal with them. And, and so he was forced to stay with me. And, and up to that point, because the person I was leading up to my suicide attempt was, was um, extremely unpleasant. There was a general consensus in the household that everyone hated me and everyone was happy when I was traveling for work and no one liked it when I was home. And that was not just a general consensus. That was expressed to me multiple times. Um, and even when I was in treatment after recovering from my suicide, my, my former partner sent me a letter that basically said, we're so happy without you. Stay there. And so, so when it came time to really kind of separate everything, my older son came with me and, and he is a very spirited kid who um, has zero regard for rules and authority. And my younger son is very compliant. He, he's the kind of kid that doesn't require a lot of oversight. So from a single perspective, if you wanted to be like my partner enjoys the single life, my former partner enjoys the single life, it's very easy to have a kid like that because you don't need to take care of them. You can just kind of put them in one spot and they don't cause any problems. My older son, not so much. He and I are around each other 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's been hard because he has watched the journey too. And so he's been part of it. And there's been tools from path two that he uses and it makes sense. And there's times that it's not. Uh, there's, we also, for a while, for about a year and a half, we lived on opposite sides of the country. The last time I saw my younger son was probably eight months ago, nine months ago. And he, he is kind of detached when he is, when I get a chance to see him, he is engaging, but otherwise it's, I think there's that process where he forgets about me every day, if that makes sense. Mm. And so, but with the, with the son that I raised full time, it's, um, 
I'm, I'm now the jack of all trades. And what that really highlighted too was the dynamic in the household before, the by dynamic in the family before was very unhealthy mm-hmm. because it was a division of labor. It was not shared labor. So it was a single income household, which is, which is why I wasn't allowed to leave my job. And be, when you work eight hours a week, there's very little time for supporting the family infrastructure. And so in that process, it's been really hard on my older son. By all accounts, my younger son is not malfunctioning, right? So it's kind of like you assume everything is fine when there's no evidence of, of malfunction. But it took a long time for my, my older son to adapt, and he's still adapting. And it's, it's a process we learned. The biggest thing for me was to stop being the father I wanted to be. That was the biggest thing, is I had to let go of that. And I had to treat him like somebody I was kind of not romantically in love with, but somebody whom I wanted to serve. And that really changed the dynamic between the two of us. Because now I no longer felt the need to know how to father. Based on my own model, I could actually father him in a way that reflected him as a person. And that was, that, that, had I had that tool years before, it probably would have changed the family dynamic outcome as well. What do you mean by letting go of the way you saw how to father? In my family of origin, I had a certain perspective over what a dad is like and what a mom is like, you know? And you can kind of, and I could compare my parents to other parents and see what I liked and what I didn't like, but there were some values that were instilled in me very early on. And like I said, there's a part of me, so I did have suicidal ideations most of my life. And I also have a terminal heart defect. And so I know my time is limited. And so part of that really affected my mentality on how I raised my son. Because I already kind of began with a, with a premise that I'm not going to see them through adulthood. Even though my goal was to be that old grandpa, the reason that was so, I was driving so hard to that is that was really, that, that was my nirvana. That was where my soul needed to be. But there was always that concern of if you fall short, it's going to be way short. And so I tried to raise my sons in a way that they would be resilient without me and that they followed a certain, not say protocol, but that they saw the world from a more mature perspective than, than they were capable of. And the one joke I often make with my older son is that I, I wanted him to be unbreakable And instead of building somebody that was flexible, I turned him into an anvil. And so those are different things. And so part of that process of of fatherhood, I had to let go of that. Mm -hmm. If I were, again, looking, and this was the benefit of hindsight and really being reflective. Uh, When you look at your, your own autopsy report, you can say, these were all the red flags that said what I was doing was wrong. And when I was seeing those red flags, I was just doubling down and doing it harder and more. I felt like it needed a greater effort instead of a different approach. Mm-hmm. And so when it really got time to raising my older son on his own, we had very open conversations about like, what do you want? What are signs? And, and they can't, you know, an adolescent is, is only so emotionally intelligent and in, in to be able to communicate that. But what I was able to read was based on behaviors, what was working and what wasn't working. That was, it was revolutionary for me, but I had to let go of a model that I had subscribed to for a long time. The same way I needed to let go of a model that you need to achieve success in order to have happiness and you need to 
follow the path that everybody, you need to do it the quote unquote right way. There is no right way. And so I had to really let go of that framework in order to feel free to address the, the situation in the way that was best for everybody. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like truly you were cleansing yourself and letting go of these old processes and models that just didn't lead to your desired outcome and in place you know you 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 put in kind of trust and and living from love and maybe these less like objectively oriented things where you're just kind of like feeling more into it and living from a place of emotion rather than like I want to get somewhere. Correct. And that was, that was a big part of the, the path concept for me was really saying it's about the path, man. It's not about these little waypoints that, mm. that I'm just going to pass through as checkpoints. Like I really need to enjoy this because, and, and that was when I let go, when I had to let go of a certain destination I had in mind, like, Hey, that's no longer on the table. It really changed my perspective on, well, what's the point of this? Well, the point of this is to find all those emotional things I want to experience and get them now. Let, let's have a life that it has those emotions every day and not just at a certain point, not when I have a certain amount of money or when I can retire or when a certain thing is accomplished. Let's have that now. But it also didn't require me to forfeit all those objectives. I can still do those things. And that was, and now I'm doing them with a totally different energy in, in how I show up both for the activity and for myself. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy for you, Robin. Thank you so much for sharing like your insight on your personal journey. It sounds like you've really been able to craft your own narrative about what happened in your life. And you're able to look back and say, hey, this is what happened. And, you know, you're not judging yourself for it. And that's such a beautiful thing because other people can learn from that and say, how do I actually get to where I want to go rather than live into a different life 20, 30, 40 years in and, and then kind of go through that process. So thank you, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's my big motivator right now because getting a chance to identify what those early warning flags are and like what the, the indicators are, mm -hmm. I see it in so many people. And there, there's so many people, so many friends and, and just people that I'm surrounded with day in and day out where it's like, okay, I want people to learn from this. I want to empower people and, and give them that knowledge because it really did change things for me. And if it could take me from literally losing everything to feeling like I have everything in a very short period of time, it, it would be really selfish to just kind of sit on this and not spare people the loss. Because if I can, if I can get one person to avoid the kind of loss that I went through, and when I say it was painful, that was, that's an understatement. If I can save that, that's it's a huge motivating factor. So it, it feels great to be in the position that I'm in right now to be able to to guide people away from from those dangers, quite honestly. Right. Exactly. Cause once we have the tools, then you know, it's just so small changes initially that over time will create like a different kind of life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jess, for having me. I really appreciate it.